Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com you are now listening to postmortem with mick garris where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts literally to the renowned horror director writer and producer now here's your host mick garris i'm mick garris and this is postmortem One of the joys of being a fan of the horror genre is tracking the careers of promising filmmakers working within it. It's especially fascinating to discover exciting new voices from different corners of the world. It's exciting to discover a little gem in Sitges, Spain, for example, from a Norwegian filmmaker, for example, and see his career blossom and be recruited in the U.S. by the major studios. A lot of our most successful filmmakers got to us by way of smaller-scale films from other nations. I first met Guillermo del Toro at a screening he had set up for me to see his film Kronos when I was about to shoot The Stand. He did that so that I would consider the film's now Oscar-winning director of photography, Guillermo Navarro, to shoot the miniseries. Well, that didn't work out, but it did introduce me to an exciting original voice in genre cinema that I would never have known about if I had stuck to my local cineplex. And to see Del Toro's career flourish into huge success and Oscars warms my heart. Sweden's Thomas Alfredsson went from Let the Right One In to Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and the Snowman. Japan's Hideo Nakata went from Dark Water and Ringu to big-budget Hollywood studio remakes of the same movies. Britain's Neil Marshall went from Dog Soldiers and The Descent to Lost in Space, Game of Thrones, and Hellboy. Spain's Juan Antonio Bayona went from the nightmarish The Orphanage to The Impossible and A Monster Calls. Australia's James Wan went from Tiny Little Saw into an entire industry unto himself. Scandinavian countries have given us a huge assortment of high-quality horror, Night Watch, Rare Exports, Dead Snow, and many others. But my very favorite is the brilliant faux-found-footage extravaganza Troll Hunter, written and directed by Andre Overdahl. He followed that up with his first English-language film, a little movie called The Autopsy of Jane Doe, one of the creepiest, most mysterious, and original horror films of the last several years. And now... Andre is on the verge of the release of his first major American studio film, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, produced by Guillermo del Toro himself. We'll talk about that journey through an exciting burgeoning career with Andre right after this. So, you think being a private eye in a decaying city on the East Coast in the 1920s is easy? 
when your city is chock full of criminals, cultists, insmuthers, witches, and Cthulhu knows what else? Well, it's definitely not. Dive into The Sinking City, an investigative adventure game set in an open world inspired by the universe of H.P. Lovecraft, the master of horror. The half-submerged city of Oakmont is gripped by supernatural forces. You are a private investigator, and you have to uncover the truth behind what has possessed the city and the minds of its inhabitants. The Sinking City is now available on PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and PC. In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been 40 years now, and Fangoria is better than ever, each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head to Fangoria.com to learn more and to, well, subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code POSTMORTEM to save 15% off your subscription. That's Fangoria.com, promo code POSTMORTEM to save 15%. So, where did it all start for you? Were you a, a a genre fan as a kid in Norway? How how did it all come together? Oh, absolutely! I was a huge fan of the horror and uh, I mean sci-fi genre and anything that is spooky and and weird. I was watch. I was uh, scavenging the video stores for titles that nobody else would want to see right uh and um what were some of those that that you sought out that that I, impressed you i mean movies that i there were so many little movies that we called retribution or witchboard or these kind of things that nobody really knew about and then there was obviously the great ones like the exorcist and um the omen and you know and i remember seeing the omen for example as a mm on a VHS tape, that was my first experience with it, and it was the VHS tape was so bad, and it was pan and scan, but right. it made it actually so grungy, you know, uh, <laughs> and dark and sinister as a viewing experience, that when I saw the Laserdisc a few years later in, you know, beautiful widescreen, widescreen it was yeah. almost like it had a negative effect on me. Because really? Because <laughs> it I, didn't I'm, feel so forbidden to you. In a way, yeah. So kind of back alley viewing, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Were your parents supportive of your interest in the genre? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, they, you know, I mean, they were supportive of me being interested in films way before I started making anything. I remember my, I grew up out in the, basically the wilderness and there were no cinemas there. So my main thing was through TV and uh, VHS tapes. So I remember my parents bought a VHS player early 80, in the early 80s. Right. And that was like, and suddenly I started getting a hold of movies and also illegal movies. There were like famous movies like Evil Dead was not legal in Norway at the time. Really? So it had the equivalent of a British X certif certificate. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it wasn't even imported. So I had to, when I, when I got a hold of a copy of it, it was like a huge thing, you know. 
So VHS was was your launching pad. Did you know you wanted to be a filmmaker, that it was even possible to become a filmmaker when you were a kid? Did you make little home movies? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my uncle had um, a Super 8 camera, and I started filming little things with that. So you shot on film first? Yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And then I bought a, when I was like 15, I bought a video camera. And, or actually before that, but at 15, I bought one that was pretty decent. And then um, I started shooting action and horror movies with my friends uh, all summers and years, all the next years. Uh, I made a feature film called uh, about a guy who gets possessed by a Ouija board. <laughs> that was uh, when I was like 15, 16 with my neighbors. And uh, we found this uh, house that was just um, empty and we shot the whole film in there and then, you know. So were were your friends who you made the movies with, were they film fans too, or was it just fun for them? I mean, my best friend who I made the, that movie with, he was playing the lead, he was definitely a fan of the genre. Uh, but, you know, it was fun. Somebody was doing something, and it was fun. Right. And I had another neighbor who was shooting his own little horror film. So it became this little weird community among houses of 20, 30 a thirty twenty thirty houses, right? And there was like two groups of people making little films there. So you didn't even have a, a film theater in your town? No. So I had to go to Bergen, uh, which was the biggest town in the neighborhood, and it was like a half hour drive. And we didn't really, you know, so it wasn't really like a thing you just did on a daily basis. Right. It was like a whole track to do it, and it would be a movie that uh, I would, you know, really want to see. Did you study film at all in school or anything? There's not a whole lot of bio, uh, biographical uh, material about you available. <laughs> so I, I'm just kind of searching yeah. to, to see, was, uh, did you go to film school? Was there, um, what was your education? Was it entirely a self-educated thing? No, I mean, I shot movies for years that way until, but then when I was 19, I went to Santa Barbara and I went to film school there. Oh, oh. So I spent UCSB? four... UCSB? Uh, no, a, a school called Brooks Institute. Oh, I know that, the Brooks Institute. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, they yeah. do pho photography as well. Yeah, no, it's mainly a photography school, yeah, and then they have a film fantastic. department. So, yeah, yeah Shelley Johnson, my uh, my DP on The Shining and uh, Quicksilver Highway, had um, uh, taught photography there. Oh, yeah, how funny. Really yeah. a fantastic place. I had no idea you went to school in California. Yeah, no, so I've been... Uh, so I, I, you know, had a, a many years here. I spent five years. I lived for a year in Burbank afterwards. Ah. Uh, worked at a place called Photocam uh, Lab. Oh yeah, the late <laughs> great Photocam. <laughs> Back when there was film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember. I worked in a storage facility there at night for a year. So. So it's interesting. So you went back to Norway. Yeah. After being in LA for years, um, and the first feature film that brought attention to your work was very Norwegian. I mean, it is steeped in the legends of, of the community um, with Troll Hunter. So how did you get the opportunity to turn that into um, a feature film, something that would, would play around the world? I mean, that was uh, obviously an unbelievable series of events that always is when you have... I mean, it, it's sheer luck, unfortunately. It's a lot of luck. I had a, an idea that I'm very proud of about the Troll Hunter, that very core idea, and I developed that for years, just, you know, doodling. And then um, a DOP I was working with on commercials said, you got to go and see this producer about this idea. And I, he 
uh, set me up with uh, a meeting with uh, the, basically the biggest producer in Norway, who mm. is also who was Academy Award nominated some years earlier. And I pitched it to him in a room. Just uh, I had a three-page document, but I said like two sentences of what it was about, and he just started smiling. I was like, this is the best idea I've heard in years. We're going to make this movie. <laughs> and he was like, okay. And then he made one phone call. Um, John Jacobson is his name. And he made one phone call, and he got a distributor in to finance half the movie. And then uh, just based on the pitch. And then we uh, took two years to get the Norwegian government to give us the rest. Hmm. But that was also entirely based on his position in the community, right. that they would entrust him with this money for this movie because it was a very weird movie at the time in Norway. <laughs> well, it's a weird movie now. <laughs> <laughs> but w what's great about it is it is a sort of found footage movie. But when you think of found footage movies, normally they're done because they're cheaper than anything else if you can use some ingenuity. But this has unbelievably high production values, the locations, the trolls themselves, um, the, the CG work in it is extraordinarily rich and full and good and not cheap, I'm sure. Um, so tell me about how that concept came together for you. I mean, the w big thing, and that also feeds into scary stories to tell in the dark right now, is that at that time I had, you know, um, Norwegians know what trolls look like. What they don't know at the time was what they sound like and how they move mm. and how they behave. But the, we have like these drawings that were in a, a fairy tale book that was written in the 1800s. And that's how Norwegians see their trolls, huge creatures of nature with long noses, maybe three, even nine heads at worst, you know, and oh, wow. they're kind of nutty looking. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to really stay close to that design. And I wanted several creatures in the movie. I wanted to be uh, like a, a world rather than just a monster. So to exp and I wrote several drafts of the script because I couldn't figure out the, I wanted the film to be very simple and not be about anything but discovering the world of the trolls, basically. Right. So I had to figure out a way to focus on that and not let other plot elements eat up the screen time. So that became a big thing, and it took me a couple of years to do that. And then eventually we shot it in, in 2009, and we were uh, shooting very raw and unplanned in a way, because that was the way it had to be. Whenever I tried to direct a scene in that movie, like, like you know, really like normal direction in a way, right. I had to, it, it didn't work. It just played like a movie in a way. It just played like a it felt staged, it felt this, it felt, you know, it felt negative. Right, right. In, in the context of what this movie had to be. So I had to totally learn to step back and just discuss everything with everybody and let them do it and let them improvise and go back and roll takes again and again and again. So it wasn't originally a found footage format that you'd had? Yeah, no, it was. But, uh, the fo the but format, you just loosened up how you... Yeah, I couldn't really, I had to just, in the way of directing it, I just had to do it in a different way than I'm used to. I've been directing commercials for a decade before I made the film. And commercials are so specific yeah, in every detail. Yeah, that's super precise. Right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, way too precise in a way for a feature. Um, and um, so to try to make that work, to make that film work, uh, I learned to have to not be... The movie couldn't have the stamp of a director, basically. It mm. was a weird thing. So you had to step back. Yeah, really, I had to learn to step back and wow. let the actors and the camera operator and everybody work it out and random. And we would change it up the way we shot it every all the time. Every take would be different in a way. 
What was the most complicated part of that? I know you're working with visual effects with characters that aren't there when you're shooting. So did you use a, a green ball on a stick or how? what did the actors interact with? Yeah, absolutely. Green ball, we had one that was 30 feet high, <laughs> you know, that was with a green ball. Okay, that's where your, you know, look up there. That's where your... Uh, well, that's where the eyes of the troll is right. and I would stand there and I would out in the field and I would be screaming what the troll was doing to the actors <laughs> like as loud as I could and okay run you know and uh, because I had to create a sense of panic with absolutely nothing going on <laughs> right now now this wasn't your feature was it your first commercial feature your, was or had, you had done like a, a well when you were a teenager you had done one um, uh, on Super 8, but uh, had you done anything theatrical before this one? No, that was my first. Uh, I'd not. I'd done a, some short, like real shorts, but right. not much. I mean, it was. Uh, I kind of jumped directly from uh, commercials to this one. Right, and so yeah. budgetarily, what was there anything that you weren't able to do in the film that you wanted to do? Uh, from its plan because it looks like everything is there it's everything you wanted it to be no I mean like the, f the final act which is basically up on the, some mountain plateaus and there's this huge troll that comes we had a much bigger scene there and we just realized that we had to just condense it so the DOP and I sat all weekend before that the shooting of that sequence was supposed to begin and we just had to condense the script Okay, that we can do, that we can do, that we can't do. We won't be able to find the time to do that. So we have to get from there to there. It was a, and we, we rewrote the script, the action of the thing, of the piece, basically. Once you were into it already. Yeah, when we were yeah. in depth and we basically knew how fast we could shoot. Right. The only way, we shot that film in 28 days. And wow. The, and the only way we were able to do that is because with found footage, you only have one camera. You know, right. you only have one angle on everything. You, you're not cutting to a new angle. Right. You don't have to do coverage. You can't so you're do not coverage. covering it from eight different angles and no. all of that. So that, then you could shoot, uh, we could shoot a four-page scene in an hour if we absolutely had to. Well, what about the location shooting? I mean, you were born and raised in Norway, so you're used to snow. But there, that looked to me like one hellacious location to shoot. Yeah, no, it was amazing. I mean, we were driving around uh, all over the West Coast area of Norway with like a caravan of 10, 12 cars. One would make, you know, all the usual elements. And um, we would just, and it would be uh, traversing through areas with huge, uh, um, with snow and ice. And it was times kind of crazy. I remember once the, the driver of the a troll hunter's car we were going downhill and it was icy and he was sitting with the door open in case the car started sliding he, <laughs> he was going to be able to jump out it was like that was the it was so crazy what was the most challenging part of that for you i mean we did three weeks on the road like that to shoot in a real location oh it's miserable to shoot on the road <laughs> yeah <laughs> and we were just like uh, and to organize uh, you know the this hotels and that kind of stuff is a huge thing obviously i wasn't involved with that but it's a it's a big job to even be able to do it um and then uh we went back to oslo and then we shot all the forest scenes that didn't really need the huge locations right right and a few interiors and yeah so you finished your first feature film. You'd ma been making your living as a filmmaker doing commercials and videos and things. So now you've got a movie and suddenly 
film festivals want to play it. And you're starting to get reaction. Tell me the feeling of, of going into a theater full of, of uh, an audience that fills a theater at a film festival and is loving your movie. I mean, it was, I was in, I remember we had one screening before we left Oslo to show, well, our first screening of the movie was, a public screening of the movie was at Fantastic Fest. Ah, great, in the UK, yeah. No, in the US, Fantastic oh, Fest oh, in oh, Austin, Austin, in Texas. Austin, yeah, not yeah. the one in London. Yeah. So it was such a local movie and it was dealing with such local themes and local lore in a way. And the first people who were going to see it were basically Texans and, <laughs> right. and an the national and international audience. And we were like terrified. What if they don't understand anything of what we're trying to do? All the jokes are meant for a Norwegian audience right. uh, in, uh, in a tone. And then. So nobody'd seen it at home yet. Nobody's seen it. Not even the Texas. distributor. Not uh, nobody. Oh, wow. It was, uh, it was insane. We were. Um, so we went to Texas and we showed it. And I remember we sat there for the whole night like wondering how people reacted really extremely well in the theater but you don't really know because it's a warm environment right right more than anything it's a warm wonderful environment yeah but a festival audience will let you know if they're going to hold their noses <laughs> yeah maybe <laughs> yeah uh, but they were like okay and then i started hearing oh we're setting up special screenings throughout the night wow like in the middle of the night like 2 a.m or something for various important vip people right I think they had a specific one for Harry Knowles that was, uh, uh, I believe. Um, and uh, I was like, okay, what's going on now? And then suddenly tweets started coming out. It was still in the early days of Twitter. And then uh, it was suddenly overnight, it was all over that it was giving the pe all the critics so who were there. So there's buzz. Yeah, there was, there was like this buzz building throughout the night until the morning. And then suddenly they started giving ten out of, 9 out of 10 on the reviews. And it was like, right. oh my God, okay. That had to be an exciting feeling. Yeah, and then uh, the distributors all over started calling the producer about getting a hold of it. And um, uh, Tom Quinn from Magnolia at the time uh, came to. He came up to me at the screening actually and said, "I want to buy our movie." Mm -hmm. Well, and then it, it was a negotiations and all kinds of amazing stuff going on over the next few days. Uh, and so. so this was followed up. Did you go to a bunch of festivals then after that and, and, uh, and play it around the world? Yeah. And then, yeah, then I, yeah, then we had a whole bunch of festivals and then the real actual premiere became at Sundance because that was in, mm. the film was still not finished when we showed it at Fantastic Fest. Oh, so it still qualified as, as a premiere at Sundance. Yeah. That's Which was true. fantastic. So then we had a whole new thing there, and it was really well received there as well. So it was just like, you know, an amazing experience. So what were the things offered to you off of this? You probably got a lot of people coming to you with either found footage or giant monster movies. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly it. I mean, horror, found footage, and to a degree, monster movies, yeah. Mm -hmm. That was definitely it. So I, I got a ton of that, and then... But didn't really figure it out, and none of none of the projects were really like f properly financed. So we were try attach myself to a few of them. Right. The biggest one was actually, which is still like a a big wound in my career, lack of or lack of, is a movie called Carpe Demon, written by Chris Columbus, uh -huh. and the Hageman brothers, who know who also wrote uh, Scary Stories. Oh, interesting. Well, the <laughs> circle closes. Uh, an amazing circle there. Because yeah. I was attached to direct that for the longest time. Uh, and, I, you know, Chris Columbus bought the rights for the remake mm -hmm. together with a company called CG Entertainment. 
and uh, and it was such an you know that was amazing uh, to even meet one of my idols. Sure, uh, and he wanted to. You what know. you mean? You like Gremlins? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was, uh, you know, it was a whirlwind there. Well, what Crazy. about the idea of a remake? I, I remember for a while Neil Marshall was attached, yeah. and he was talking to Harrison Ford about playing <laughs> the lead in this. Were you involved at the time? Or were you hearing rumors off to the side? Or, uh, you know, because suddenly Troll Hunter isn't just this Norwegian movie. No, that was amazing. I mean, I didn't really know anything about it, uh, what was going on. I also heard Harrison Ford. I heard other big names of actors that were... In theory, attached to it for a moment, but the movie never, in a way, materialized. Unfortunately. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. Well, we only need one troll hunters. <laughs> you did it right. <laughs> you did it right. Yeah, I mean. Yeah. And so, yeah, how so. did Autopsy of Jane Doe come about from that? So I started developing a movie called Mortal with Ka Brian Cavanagh Jones and Ben Pugh at a company called Forty Two in London. It was like a a Norwegian movie about uh, another Norwegian movie about Norwegian mythology. And then um, a friend of mine at WME um, uh, sent me a script called The Autopsy of Jane Doe, and he said, you have to read it. And I didn't really have time, so I didn't get to read it for like weeks. And he was like, you have to read it. You have to read it. They're looking for directors. Your name is not on that list. It should be. And I was like, okay, well, let me read it then. Uh, and I sat for 45 minutes and I read through it overnight and it was terrifying. Yeah. I was like, holy Moses. And I had just come out of uh, seeing The Conjuring, mm. which was so inspiring because it was such a, it was a film that was not following the, at the time, uh, found footage genre. It was right. like a proper Hollywood movie, horror movie, like the ones I grew up with. A narrative film. Yeah. Yes. And really like classically told. And it was so well constructed. It was so inspiring, and it showed that horror, the horror genre, can really thrive mm -hmm. again with just like doing solid classical filmmaking and not having to experiment with the genre. And it was uh, very so. I okay. Well, that the connection of those the, those two events led me to say, okay, let me talk to the producers. And they were all. I was already in theory working with them on Mortal, or at least half of the producers. And um, and they felt they loved my pitch, and suddenly I'm there attached to it. And that was 2013. And then it took two years with a whole bunch of casting issues to get it off the ground because we had Martin Sheen originally. Oh, wow. Uh, interesting. Yeah. And, well, Brian Cox is so perfect. Oh, yeah. So no. perfect. Um, so you, the scope of Troll Hunter, regardless of the budget, was huge. The scope was giant. And the characters were giant. And the autopsy of Jane Doe is exactly the opposite. It's incredibly claustrophobic. It all takes place in one place. And it is so haunting. Tell me about how you went about planning how it, what the style was going to be, what the approach was going to be. Because it's a very unified feeling film. It, it, it feels choreographed despite the, the, the tiny scope of it. Yeah, no, we really, I mean, the challenge I found to, to be able to make a movie in a closed environment like that is you have to vary it. You have to find each scene has to be shot in a different way. So it has to, uh, so you feel, an, and also we created a DOP and we created a, an evolution in the style throughout the film. So it was going to be, 
so it would it would in a way feel like there is an evolution even though the space is the same we would start with one set of lenses and then we would transition to another set of mm. section of the lens range at the midpoint of the film and to so we basically had to um, make space that initially felt warm and inviting and known for the characters would suddenly become unknown and frightening the same space walking through the hallway in the beginning should not feel like walking through the hallway in the late part of the movie mm. so you could sense the environment and i was very preoccupied with just having environments so we would shoot everything on wide lenses mm -hmm. you know we would essentially stay in the 20 to 15 40 20 to 40 mm -hmm. through the movie um and uh and so we always have environment and i really believe that's part of horror in general to to relate the physical space to the characters right. uh, well it's it's beautifully composed it's beautifully done um but the experience now you're working with a name actor an internationally renowned actor for the first time did you find that intimidating at all Oh, absolutely. I mean, in theory, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, of course, I'd known about both uh, Emil Hirsch and, uh, and uh, Brian Cox are right. amazing actors. Absolutely. So, A, I was super lucky to, I knew I could lean on them right. for tense, important moments. I knew I had the best professionals I could ever have. And then, uh, but at the same time, yeah, it's intimidating. I remember I was terrified meeting uh, Brian the first time. Mm-hmm. But he was so nice. He was so welcoming and so inviting. And then he was so professional on the shoot. He was, uh, you know, he knew everything and he would nail it on the first take. They wow. both would. Wow. And the only thing, it was just a luxury. I would just sometimes just, that's fantastic. Let's just do another take. And they would go at it again. And it was actually even better because they would refine their, mm -hmm. they would instinctively know what they could do better. I didn't have to tell them. It was amazing to watch. Uh, okay, at that moment, it didn't quite land and then they just naturally did it better, if you will, the second take. And we, after four takes, we were usually done. So did you find that they kind of worked in the same way? They fed off of each other? I know some actors want more direction. Some actors want to be left alone. Um, and, and because of the very small size of the cast, uh, that, you know, working together with two actors scene after scene, uh, I, I just wonder what that process was like for you. No, it, I mean, uh, they were, I mean, Brian, obviously, he's done so much. Yeah. He doesn't really need a director. I mean, honestly, he's, yeah. uh, he knows what he's doing. Emil, too. I mean, but he would, Emil and I would have more conversations mm -hmm. about things. And, of course, we would talk, I mean, Brian and I talked a lot throughout the process of what to do next and how to do the scenes. But in the end, it is their performance. It is right. not my direction that creates <laughs> exactly. that performance. It really is. I'm just guiding them a little bit. Well, this was new for you in that you had written your first film, and now here you're working from somebody else's script. What, uh, how did that feel different to you? How did it impact your work as a director in that regard? I mean, I actually really love working on other people's scripts uh, because there is, I get just the perfect distance hmm. to it where I'm not precious over everything. I can actually analyze it and... Obviously, having to, when you choose a movie, it's almost like choosing a life partner. It's truly is a, um, you have to love the script in the first place. I, I would never make a movie if I didn't love the script. Right. So that, uh, so the script was great from the, from the get go. And then 
uh, it feels like uh, I don't know. It feels more. Um, I can also trust the writer's mm-hmm. work. I know that they, I can see it on a page that is good. When right, I'm the writing, heavy lifting's been done for yes. you yeah, in that regard. And I don't have to be responsible for that, even though, of course, you tweak and you work right. and da da da. But, but your job is then to bring it to life. Yeah, and I it love that job. It already exists, yeah. but now you bring it to life with human beings. So they're very different processes. Writing is a very solitary process. And directing is the exact opposite of that. Do you have a preference, or are they all part of the same machine? I mean, I love writing, but I don't really have time for it anymore. I mean, uh, after Jane Doe, it's become luxury to have those uh, months that it takes to write a script. So those were two independent movies. And um, suddenly, the gears have shifted, and scary stories in the dark comes about. How, How did that come about for you? I was um, working with um, uh, with Jason Brown and Sean Daniel, uh, two of the producers. On I worked with Sean when I was writing The Mummy. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> of course. Yeah. No, he's fantastic. Well, yeah. not the Mummy that got made. No, I really, I know you. Uh, yeah. The one that I, I, was still a horror movie. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know you were involved with it earlier. I've, yeah. yeah I've, uh, Sean was great. Really a great yeah. producer. Yeah. Yeah, so you're was, working with him. Yeah, I was working with them on a movie that eventually didn't go. And then uh, six months later, um, suddenly they slipped me a script and they say, Guillermo was supposed to direct this. He might not. You want to mm-hmm. read it? And I was like, okay. And Guillermo already likes you. So because he had tweeted about uh, Jane Doe like mm. six, eight months before. Oh, great. The same week that Stephen King did it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. you got knighted twice. <laughs> <laughs> it was crazy, yeah. And then, um, uh, and then uh, I read the script, and it was by the Hageman brothers, who had also written Carpe Demon with Chris Columbus, and I immediately just loved it. It was like an mm. Amblin movie, like you obviously know very yeah. well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, it was a, a horror Amblin movie, that, and that's how I pitched it to the studio, that's and I pitched great. it to everybody, and that, that's the take I want to do. And it was such a... Uh, beautiful story of coming of age with mm-hmm. all these kids and um, and uh, and one wonderful set piece after the other and it was all tied together so beautifully with the way the stories are uh, are from the books and uh, it was just a dream scenario to be able to get to make that this movie out for me did the process of working with a studio uh, rear its head as something different from the beginning or because you had the 800-pound gorilla that is Guillermo del Toro producing, did that protect you from that? Or did you find yourself uh, surrounded by more input than you were used to? No, I mean, that's the thing. When I grew up, well, my professional career was growing up in the commercial industry. So there you have to deal with agencies and you have to deal with clients and you have to make a movie for a bunch of people. And you have right. conversations, creative conversations, with everybody, including people who don't really know the process of making a movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you're quite used to dealing with all these things. And that really, I think, helped me prepare for that process. But CBS has been amazing. I mean, Terry Press has been amazing. She's been so supportive for the whole uh, throughout. And obviously, yes, there is a thing about having Guillermo del Toro <laughs> producing. <laughs> the Godfather, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it has definitely been a huge support. Um, 
throughout. He's been amazing and he's an awe-inspiring person. To yeah, be well, just people don't realize what a brilliant artist he is. I mean, painting and drawing as well as filmmaking and writing. Yeah, no, his move, his movies are beautiful. They're identi- they have an identity that are just unique to him and will stand in film history forever. And it's uh, in addition, he's such a smart storyteller. To have we were having, you know, we had like weeks where we're sitting in basically a writers' room with the writers and him and me and a couple of the producers, and to to tweak the script before we went into production. And it was just an amazing experience. I mean, his knowledge of storytelling and understanding of character and detail and themes and fitting everything together and making themes come alive in specific little details um, was just uh, um, was a masterclass for me. Uh, yeah, I, I worked with him briefly. Uh, he asked me to produce Don't Be Afraid of the Dark before it fell apart when it was a part of the Disney Miramax uh, fall yeah. apart time. And he's just such a brilliant guy and a sweet guy. Yeah. And uh, just amazing to work with. And and I know this will reflect his personality, but tell me how it felt. It, it reflects your personality as a filmmaker, too. What do you think that personally you brought to this movie? I mean, Guillermo says, and I can only quote him on that, <laughs> that <laughs> I, I make, I can, I'm able to make a horror movie with a heart. Mm. I'm not a vicious horror filmmaker, which some are. You know, they, well, I don't know if they're vicious, but the movies can be quite vicious. To, Absolutely. To yeah. reach the height of intense horror, sometimes you have to be vicious. But I try to bring a, a warmth to the films, and I think that's what he wanted as well. And obviously, uh, his movies are, yeah. and his movies are filled with that warmth. Absolutely, they're, they're bordering on sentimental in a good way. Yeah. So. Did you tap into, this is a film about childhood and what scares you as a child. Did it bring you around to nostalgic feelings of, of, of your own childhood fears? Yeah, I mean, uh, the movie is, you know, is based on these children's books and it's all about making, uh, making all these little stories come alive. And they're so, you know, they're so um, international in their structure, all of oh, these really? stories. They're very uh, easy to understand for anybody and to appreciate for anybody, you know. And also the scenes, as written in the script, were, you know, you immediately recognized running, crawling under the bed mm-hmm. and f- hearing the monster and all these very classical scenarios that are nightmares for kids. Speaking of nightmares, do you dream? I do, but I barely remember them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you were a kid. Uh, are there fears that you had that are reflected in this new movie? Um, I mean, yeah, I think the way I depict a scene will probably come from how I fear it, how right. I would experience it. Right. But the scene itself is obviously somebody else's construction. Somebody else wrote it. Right. But the way I pr- project it onto a screen, in a way, will be based on, yeah. When you were a kid, do you remember what the first scary movie you saw as a child? The first scary movie. Oh, God. I don't really. Or one that had a particular effect on you. I know we talked about The Omen, but... Yeah, no, I mean, uh, the one that really scared me, I don't know how old I was, was, was Poltergeist. Yeah. The tree outside uh, <laughs> uh, and the doll and he's just sitting there counting for the, 
you know, counting down from the, the seconds for the thunder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just that was so real. Yeah. And because I grew up in an area with a lot of bad weather, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I could totally relate to that. I was lucky enough to be on the on the set for a couple of those scenes, and mm-hmm. it was pretty amazing watching that come together. Uh, who are the filmmakers who inspire you? I mean, when I grew up, um, for sure, Steven Spielberg is like easily by far my number one. Yeah. Uh, and then you have Robert Zemeckis and Joe Dante and uh, all these people who... The Amblin crowd. <laughs> yeah, the Amblin crowd. I mean, Amblin movies where I would, you know, watch them again and again and again and again, all these movies. And are there other are there other artistic forms that you are a part of? Do you play an instrument? Have you made music? Do you draw? Uh, I used to draw quite a bit, but then I put it away and now I can't draw worth anything <laughs> but when I was a kid I drew a lot I drew wow. cartoons and all kinds of stuff and I was fairly decent so if I but now uh, I used to do that too until I started writing at 12 and then it, that kind <laughs> of replaced it and I I got my first little movie camera at 12 as well an oh, eight yeah. millimeter camera so that mm. kind of changed the course of my life not that I ever thought I'd make a living doing it and mm-hmm. lucky us <laughs> no we're just insanely lucky yeah. I mean, yeah what what do you think you would be doing if you weren't able to have a film career i don't know i always wanted to be an astronaut really <laughs> really <laughs> when i was a kid i don't think i probably wouldn't be but uh <laughs> it's a even more select group of people than uh-huh. being a director outside of the horror genre what are some of the films and filmmakers that have, have inspired you I mean, of course, Guillermo del Toro is a huge inspiration. Yeah. Uh, the way he uh, organize, shoots scenes and the, with the beauty of everything he does and the performances he gets out of his actors are amazing. Um, but and even non-genre stuff, maybe something um, that... What would be films that you like that would surprise people that you like them? I mean, one of my favorite movies is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm-hmm. I watched that numerous times endless amount of times uh the um i love 70s thrillers so i mean like my all-time favorite movie is close encounters oh wow and i love all the president's men i can watch that oh, obsessively yeah. yeah i mean it's just a talking it's just a movie a bunch of people on the phone in a way <laughs> right. but i mean my god it's so uh, exciting what is your process um when you're taking on a movie the script is written how do you start breaking it down? Do you do you storyboard everything? Do you shot list? Um, how do you set out to make an Andre Overdahl film? The, the worst process for me is actually the very first time I read a script. I can mm. spend weeks procrastinating reading a script <laughs> because I know because the process is basically a day or two's work to read through it because I have to make I have to every thought I have as I'm reading it the very first time. I want to write down the the emotional reaction because that's the first that's when I watched the movie the first time. Right. And I will never get it back. Second time is analysis, third time is breaking it down. Mm. So the first so it's so so that becomes a huge thing. And uh but then you know no I mean when it comes to shooting when it comes to preparing it I I shot list. I make overhead like uh, plan view uh, uh-huh. plan view some scenes you obviously have to storyboard. I'm not a, usually it's so hurried, so rushed into production. The storyboard is such a meticulous, 
long-winded oh, yeah. process and back and forth with the artist and da 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 da. Yeah, if you can't be sitting with the artist and who has the time to do that, it becomes so difficult. You don't want to just hand over a scene and say, "Here." Oh no, I'm obsessive about the camera angles. Yeah, every I, I, single shot. I would drive the, yeah. thro- the drawers nuts because <laughs> no, the, it's lower. It's it's ten inches lower. The camera right. is going ten inches lower, so you have to draw. Yeah. So let's say it's Saturday before you start shooting on Monday. What's your process? Uh, I mean, this ideally, I would rest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you've done all your prep. You're ready. Yeah, ideally. But I mean, like on scary stories, we had a bit of, you know, we weren't, we didn't have enough time to prepare every day hmm. or for, the, because we had to like almost improvise a bunch of the scenes. So the DOP really? and I would meet at 4 a.m. in the morning before the shooting day starts. We sit for three hours and we wow. would prepare the shot list for the day and uh, and walk through the plan view together and uh, and then hand it out to everybody like an hour before the shoot start even half an hour before the shoot start wow so everybody's like oh we're gonna be over there okay (laughs) (laughs) what is a kind of movie that you haven't made that you would like to make I mean, do you like, would you want to do a Western? Would you want to do a, a legal thriller? Would you want to do a romance? Or... <laughs> I mean... Uh, a puppet movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a big adventure film. You know, Indiana yeah. Jones would be amazing. Uh, Star Wars would be amazing. Something like that would yeah. be... Uh, but those are, yeah. What do you think it is about the your background, your Scandinavian upbringing that maybe is reflected in the films that you make? I think that there is a groundedness to what I do. I love the idea of making a um, spectacular events on screen that are basically unreal, but do it in as grounded a way as possible. And in many ways, Troll Hunter is the extreme version of that because you're insisting everything is real with a documentary camera, but it's about ridiculous big trolls with long noses. (laughs) (laughs) So the contrast is as, is the biggest there. But I think also on Jane and especially on scary stories, it's about trying to stick to a very grounded level attitude. And that's where you begin is always with the characters and actors. Right. What about making a film for kids? You know, you're taking a known property, IP, as everyone likes to say, uh, that maybe people grew up with. People in their 30s are, are probably as much the target audience as as the younger kids who are reading the, the books for, for the first time. So what was your approach on, on tackling this kind of material that's already familiar? I mean, I, I love the challenge of that. I mean, again, like with the next movie, with the Stephen King movie, I, I love the challenge of having to live up to somebody's expectations in a way. And when you have the entire American population having grown up with these books, you can't really get more expectations right? <laughs> in a way. So there is a fear that drives that, uh, that is exciting in a way. I don't know. Did you have to keep things in mind? Did you have to be careful knowing that, uh, I assume this is a PG-13, right? Yeah. Um, did you... Uh, were there things that you had to be cautious of because you knew you were restricted by that rating? No, I mean, I never saw that uh, rating as a restriction whatsoever. Uh. I mean, my goal was to make the scariest movie I possibly could. Mm-hmm. And that's what I really think we've done. I mean, I've seen the audience scream at the theater and test screenings in, in pure fear for the characters. So it, it, it seems to work really well. Uh, well, let's talk about Stephen King, because <laughs> uh, that's your next movie. 
the long walk, as long as I've been doing Stephen King stuff, I've had at least a hundred people say to me, you know, the long walk, that should be a Stephen King movie. I've got a great script of the, the long walk. You, you know, King wrote that story when he was 19 years old. And it's an incredible story. So tell me uh, about how you have come into the world of Stephen King. I mean, I grew up with reading his books. Um, I read uh, all his original, you know, all the, those 70s books uh, when I was in my teens. Uh, and I just f completely fell in love with them. I would devour one book a day, which is kind of today when I spent, <laughs> it's pretty, I can't believe I could even read that much. Um, and uh, so I, I have loved his novels all my life. And then uh, The Long Walk, comes along like uh, it's almost a year and a half ago since I first uh, read the script mm -hmm. and and who wrote the script uh, James Vanderbilt ah. and he wrote it on spec basically because he loves the book so much yeah and there are probably a hundred spec scripts of the long <laughs> walk out there at least yeah <laughs> but fantastic yeah. so now yeah. King had already let it be known that he was a big fan of Autopsy of Jane Doe so was that did that have anything to do with them coming to you because i assume if he's an executive producer it's from a distance yeah i i don't know about that i mean i don't even technically i don't even know if he's obviously i'm assuming he must be aware that i'm directing it he is <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i haven't talked i haven't had the opportunity to speak with him myself obviously um right but the uh uh no i mean he's uh um, no, sorry, what was the question? Uh, well, just uh, wondering about uh, how it came about, your connection to this. Was it just a script that your agent brought to you that they're thinking of uh, Andre Overdahl would be the perfect guy yeah. for this? Yeah, I mean, and also I think the, they see the connection. Uh, I think they saw New Line and Brad Fisher, the producer, and, um, and my agents for that matter, uh, saw the connection with between the autopsy of Jane Doe and the Long Walk, which is that it's kind of a chamber play mm -hmm. in a way with characters just in even a though very, it's on the road instead it's of still enclosed. a very confined yeah. space. Yeah, it's yeah. that's you have that area. It's a short story. It's a long short story, but um, how how do you envision that as a feature film? There had to have been some liberties taken to expand the story a little bit. Yeah, I mean, uh, not much liberties. I mean, I think that the script is really a fantastic representation of what the book is. Um, I think, uh, so, um, what can I say? <laughs> well, we don't want you to give anything away, but yeah. but you feel that it's a pretty representative oh, yeah. uh, uh, feature film adaptation. I know when I did Riding the Bullet, there was a 30-page short story, and half of that movie is just invention that wasn't there, but with yeah. the full support of King, which was awfully nice to have. Um, I imagine, yeah. So what? Uh, who did you read when you were growing up? I mean, obviously King. Did you read Richard Matheson, Clive Barker, other horror, or was you? Yeah, Ray Bradbury and all, oh. yeah, I mean all, all this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I have to admit, I didn't read that much. I have mm -hmm. to say, I you watched, watched more movies than you read, yeah. more than I read. Yeah. But I did read a lot of. I read Jules Verne. I read uh -huh. a lot of stuff like that. Fantastic uh, tales, in a way. 
who who is no longer with us in the world of film do you wish you had met? Uh, I mean, Orson Welles, Stanley Kubrick, mm. those are huge inspirations uh, yeah. and seem like uh, very fascinating people. Uh, who, what are the films that would be your your tropical desert island films that you would want to have uh, maybe three films with you that were the only ones you could watch over and over and over? <laughs> oh, uh, well, if, <laughs> probably an Indiana Jones film, Close Encounters, <laughs> and maybe Die Hard or Seven or... Oh, nice. Uh, <laughs> okay. Just a, one non-Amblin movie. In there. <laughs> Non-Spielberg thing. So... Mm. Well, listen, Andre, this has just been a, a total delight, and I'm really excited to th see the film. This will probably be out there once the film opens, but but um, I love your work, and so many other people do that have opened doors to you doing even bigger and better, and, uh, and I'm really excited for you, and it's great to watch the trajectory of your career. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much to, for having me on here. I'm been a huge fan of yours for my whole life so oh. i'm very honored to be here well it's an honor for me too and and good luck with the movie and i know it's going to be great and everything beyond so thanks a lot for being here thank you if you're enjoying the podcast we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on apple podcasts or your favorite podcast app if you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. This is a brand new address, so don't forget it. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, mickgarrisinterviews.com. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers! If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.